Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own, as we seek to follow the path of Jesus Christ to Calvary through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in our lives. Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. Well, Riley, I'm really excited. This is going to be a really great thing. Likewise, Shiloh, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to co-host this podcast, and I'm really excited about the possibilities. Man, when we really first started talking about doing a podcast together, we've both been on a journey over the last several years that has really brought us to some interesting places, and we've started asking some pretty interesting questions that have really led us down a path that have brought a lot of peace to our lives and seems to be producing some really good fruit. Yeah, and it's strange how we've kind of overlapped in different groups and relationships and movements over the last few years. We've actually known each other quite a while, but we've only met in person maybe once or twice. (laughs) But yet we have this overlapping path that we keep running into each other, and this is kind of the culmination of it. Um, It started politically, and then it went, you know, economics and spirituality, and now it's this kind of deeper level of contemplation that's been really fun for me to explore and learn more about, and I know it has for you as well. Yeah, it's been right about 10, 12 years. I know we both started with LDS Liberty. That was a a podcast that started really back in like 2008, 2009, and you wrote an article for that, as I remember, right? Yeah, it was uh, kind of goofy, but... You know, it, it was a it was an article that at the time I thought, oh man, I just killed it with that. You know, it was a few pages and it was entitled "Keeping Our Second Estate," and it was um, it was a freedom focused, you know, right right in the wheelhouse of LDS liberty, and then it, it had a bunch of scriptures that pulled in and and quotes from different general authorities and and whatnot. You know, I, I feel like that was a it was a good time in my life. I was learning a lot about natural law and the overlaps between that and my my religion and spirituality and the gospel but uh, I, I just feel like I've come to a point where you know not that that stuff's boring or useless it's just that uh, I feel like there's more important things out there and as I've explored that and gone down that road further in in studying various different uh, modes of interpretation of the gospel and practice of the gospel it's like you said it's born some really good fruit and and so for me you know as we said in our introduction i'm no expert you know i'm just kind of kicking off my journey here and i'm excited to share it with whoever you know uh puts aside a few minutes to listen whether it's few or many um i just want to put it out there and and learn from the listeners as much as i hope to communicate something useful to them. I absolutely agree. That's that's a lot of my own experience as well. I I realized not too long ago that my discipleship with Christ had really become this rote mechanical thing that I was studying a lot about Jesus Christ, but I 
didn't actually know him. And it was about, I don't know, it's got to be at least five years now. There was a, a friend of mine who was on social media and he was, we, we were in this one forum and we were talking about Jesus and we were arguing about who Jesus was. And I mean, this is the, the irony of all ironies when you finally come into contention about if you're arguing about who Jesus is. And he had made the mention that for all of our talking about Christ, what was our relationship like? Were we actually experiencing God? And for me, man, that was, that was kind of a, a punch in the gut. And I, I reflected on that for a long time about how long I had been studying. And I, I love apologetics in my whole life. I've, I've been into apologetics of the church and I've, I've been talking about uh, different aspects of church history and theology. And I love the scriptures and I'm always in the scriptures and, and pulling cool things out. But that yeah, one... Well, if you're anything like me in that respect, it was all about the memorization of facts. And maybe we were applying them to some respect, but I almost prided myself on quoting scripture and verse and knowing doctrine inside now and, and being able to quote some GA. And But uh, as far as application or experience, that was the part that I, looking back, I think I was missing something there. Yeah, that was my experience too. I, I you know, we've talked about it and, and I've told you the story, but there was a time I was in a sacrament meeting and it's such a mundane story. And it's one of those stories that are kind of popular in, in Mormon culture, but it's about this, uh, this guy who's giving an interview. And when he's giving this interview, he is talking to these three guys and the question seems a little bit bizarre, but it works for the story. But, and he asked the first guy who interviews and he says, Hey, tell me everything that you know about Jesus Christ. And the guys, you know, he goes, I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about Jesus. And the interviewer is, you know, he says, okay, awesome. Thank you. You know, thanks for coming in. And they talk for a little bit more and, and that guy leaves. And the, the second interviewee comes in and the first question out the gate is, hey, tell me what you know about Jesus Christ. To where which this guy, man, this guy goes off for like an hour on everything that he knows about Jesus, the history, the scriptures, the the context of who and what Jesus was, all of the prophecies leading up, all the prophecies leading afterwards, the formation of the church, just everything. He knows everything about Jesus, and he just downloads for like an hour. And the interviewer is like, wow, that's, that's some really great information. And then the third guy comes in, and the interviewer looks at him, and he says, well, you know, will you tell me everything that you know about Jesus Christ? To wherein the individual falls to his knees, recognizing that the interviewer is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And so the, the third interviewer recognizes who he is. And when I heard that in church, you know, this is the, the story is much more flowery, right? And it gets you more involved into it. But when I heard that, I was started to think that I, I'm that second person. I, I'm the second person who was in the interview. Who's like, yeah, let me tell you everything. And, and, and you start getting on a roll and, and everything that you'd studied and like what you're talking about, I memorized all these scriptures and I thought it was, it was really good. But it was with that question about experiencing God that I really started wondering in my discipleship, like if if I'm walking down the street and I I pass by Christ, would I even recognize Him? You know, if I it, towards the end of Christ, you know, when Christ is resurrected, there towards the end of this of the story of Christ's mortal journey, and He's walking next to those guys and they don't recognize who He is, and they're all like, you know, our hearts burned within us. How do we not know who He was? And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> I don't know him. And, and that's really what set me down a different kind of course correct from developing a more personal relationship with the Lord. 
than trying to analytically analyze him and understand him. Well, and if I'm honest with who I am at this point, I'm I feel like I'm just like those those guys on the road to Emmaus, those disciples, because not not in the sense that I've had any kind of amazing personal experiences with the Savior, but that you know, in the same way as you just described, you know, we might not recognize him, but yet there's something inside me, just like it was inside of them, that says, "Stay with us just a little longer. This this tastes good. You know, it it it's sweet." And so I want more of it. And and so that, that same thing has happened to me. It's been little glimpses of what's possible throughout the last five to however many years of going a level deeper with Christ and, and experiencing God, being with him and, and something different. Like I could I could be walking down the road and if I saw a member of the presiding bishopric, I'd probably recognize him. <laughs> right. <laughs> but would I recognize the Savior? That's right. In doing what what he does and being who he is. I don't I don't know, right? So I, I'm in that same camp. And you know, my to kind of get into a little backstory for me, and, and maybe you want to do the same, Shiloh. But for me, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I kind of grew up not real religious. We would go to church on Easter and on Christmas, and so I was one of those C and E Catholics that people like to joke about. My family on my mom's side, at least my grandparents and whatnot, very Catholic, very religious, faithful couple, wonderful people, raised a family of six and just did fantastic things. But for me, I didn't grow up with it, really. However, my mom had this heirloom red-letter Bible, and it was in our bookshelf for a number of years. And when I was about nine years old, I, I climbed up there and grabbed it. The front page is an embossed picture of what at least they <laughs> imagine the Savior looked like. And I opened it up, and I noticed there was some sentences highlighted in red. And I'm like, well, those must be special. So I started reading those, and I was just immediately hooked. I was hooked. And, of course, anyone who knows anything about a red-letter Bible knows those are the words of Jesus. And there's something that was so attractive about those words that just drew me in and hasn't let go. And now it's been, you know, 35 years since that moment and I'm still chasing the red letters and, and trying to listen to those. Um, I, I attended Catholic Church for a couple of years on my own, kind of looking for that community of faith, that next uh, part of the religious journey, this, the spiritual journey is to, is to really interact with people. We're social beings and a lot of our discipleship is manifested in how we interact with other members of society. And so I was looking for a community, you know, and so I went a couple couple of years to Catholic Church there and uh, didn't really find the community. I mean, they're great people, I'm sure, but going to church by myself at 16 years old or 17 years old, and there's, there wasn't a lot of people trying to connect with me individually, you know, and I might have just been overlooked and kind of sat in the shadows. It was probably my fault more than anything, but nevertheless, that was just how it played out. And so after that, I, I was looking at all kinds of different options. I mean, I remember being uh, very attracted to the Baha'i faith. For some reason, and I mean, I know the reason, but of all faiths, it's a it's kind of a Middle Eastern religion that is very universal or ecumenical in its approach. It takes truth from wherever it comes from, and many Latter Day Saints will recognize that same approach within our own church, and it's something we hope to exploit a little bit. But anyway, I looked at Baha'i, I looked into Sufism and several non-religious wisdom traditions and whatnot, and uh, eventually, you know, growing up in Utah, you come in contact with enough church members, someone's going to 
try to introduce you to missionaries, and that's what happened. My best friend at the time, she set up a missionary discussion with me, and you know the rest is kind of history. And so that's where I've been for the last you know 23 years as a member of the church. And for a long time, it felt like doing it right meant climbing the hierarchy. And it's been so relaxing and uh, liberating, I guess is a better word, to put that away. Hey, you don't need it. I don't need it anymore. I mean, after having served, you know, in many different callings and leadership and otherwise, it feels good to try to just be with the Savior and not feel like I have to climb some ladder. Yeah, some of the things you talked about there about your Catholic faith, and I know we're going to come around to this. There's a lot of wonderful traditions in the Catholic faith that I know will come up in a lot of our discussions as far as contemplation is concerned, meditation and stillness. And I, I absolutely love that. So I'm re- really excited for your, your background there. From well, my- one of the things that I think is important, and we'll, we'll probably highlight this later on, but my view of Christian brothers and sisters, I think coming from outside the church is, is pretty wide, uh, especially from a historical standpoint, not just in the present tense, but looking back on history, I, I look at the, the earliest Christian martyrs as, as every bit disciples, way more actually than I am. This is something I would aspire to, uh, would be to live a life of discipleship like they live, those early Christian martyrs. And then going forward, all those very faithful um, Christians who poured the, their whole soul into their discipleship, whether it was in a, a cloister or monastery or even just living regular lives with families like we are, um, I have tremendous respect for the Christian tradition, no matter what shape it takes, because I feel like where we are now, we owe to our uh, progenitors and, and those who came before us in terms of uh, practicing Christianity. I love the early Christianity discussions. That has become one of my favorite because I have a, a lot of love for the ideas of nonviolence that come out of the early Christian faith, a lot of their the martyrdom narratives that come, come there, and how that really pours over and into even modern-day scripture. I, I came to those discussions through studying my master's degree. I, I decided to, to get a master's degree in history, and just for fun. And, and in the process... Fun. Yeah, just super fun, right? <laughs> and in the process... I ended up in history, and my thesis was on Mormon nationalism from 1830 to 1900. And in studying that, to study nationalism, I necessarily had to start at studying identity. And that's when I first came into this realm of what I, what identity was. I hadn't even considered what that there was all this stuff written about identity and what that and the power that that has in shaping our lives. And that got me into a discussion of historical analysis of myth and how myth shapes our identities and suffering and sacrifice and how that forms and shapes and then how that informs our concepts of meaning and how meaning plays into our lives and and informs our belief systems and the way that we interact with the world. And through studying these methods of identity, that's also on the same time I was studying on the other side of at the same time and on the other side of this discussion these early concepts of Christian nonviolence. And, and so everything kind of started working together and I started applying what I was studying for my master's degree over here with the early Christians and to see the worldview that they used with their Christianity to be able to live the way that they did and the discipleship and, and how that cemented their, their lives. 
I, I just, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. And it's, yeah, like, just like you said, it's one of those things that I aspire to, to, to be a Christian, like the early primitive Christians were because man, some they, some they went through a lot. Really, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. I mean, something that we'll explore, I think in detail and really have some good time with is, is this, the myths, stories, and all those things that we build up the narratives around who we are and the identity of who we are and, and deconstructing those has been really enjoyable the last few years and, and somewhat uh, not so enjoyable too. I mean, it, because you, you give up a sense of who you are to, uh, or at least who you thought you were to a more primary identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that process is, uh, it's like, pulling porcupine quills out or something, right? It's, it, it hurts. Yeah. But ultimately by doing it, you're freeing yourself of the ongoing nagging pain of some of those false identities that we need to strip away. Um, so I'm, I'm on the same boat. I, I didn't go the, the route of you with the history degree. I, I studied, you know, Babylon and money and finance and all that stuff <laughs> at, uh, at BYU of all places. And so, um, but for me, you know, like many people, I came across, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell and, and Jordan Peterson and some of these psychologists and taking and Carl Jung some some approaches to uh, history, spirituality and religion that uh, incorporated psychology and methods for reading and understanding the the scriptures and myths and narratives for what they were intending to communicate. And it opened up a whole field of, of study for me and a method of study that has really borne a, a ton of fruit. Um, and it's led me to incorporate other practices into my my study and uh, learning, including Lectio Divina. And that's something I know we want to expand on. Yeah, absolutely. So Lectio Divina it comes out of the earlier Christian tradition, um, you know, Clement, Origen, um, St. John, uh, there's there's various Catholic uh, monks and saints and whatnot that have kind of improved on the methods and whatnot. But the way I, I approach it anyway is a, a way of expanding the gospel uh, it, that I haven't that I haven't experienced as um, more of a traditional member of the LDS Church. It's, it's new to me and it's it's been really uh, sweet. So that method involves taking your gospel study and not just reading and gaining knowledge, but reading with the intent of being enlightened by the Spirit, by Christ, through various methods of study. So reading is one important aspect to it, but it's one of maybe four or five in a list that you really should incorporate if you kind of want the full experience and have your field of vision opened up some. So the reading starts the path. And then the second would be, you know, meditating on what it is you read and uh, picking something out of that selected reading and, and doing a deep dive on it in a, in a meditative setting, praying about it, asking questions of God and trying to learn what he has to teach you about what you read. And when you're doing that, leaving time for him to answer, you know, go ahead and say your amen but then when you're walking away from that prayer, contemplating and seeing the hand of the Lord in everything that you do throughout the day and letting him enlighten you as you keep your eye single and your, your mind focused 
and uh, it's been it's been really enjoyable for me to start that practice a couple of years back and let the scriptures speak to me in new ways. Yeah, you know, when we first started talking about this podcast, I knew it was something that I needed to do, but it is so intimidating to me because I am such a novice at any of this. All, all this contemplation stuff, this meditation stuff, the Lectio Divina, all of this is so brand new to me that it is, it's kind of scary to even start talking about something when you don't feel like you have a firm grasp of it yet. And that's where I wanted to jump in with doing it. That became the motivation for actually doing this then because it becomes more of a, let's talk about this while we're doing it as opposed to I've already traveled this road. I'm really far down. And why don't you come? So it's not like a Lehigh moment where I've eaten the fruit necessarily. And I'm like, Hey, everybody come here. It's more like, Hey, I'm on this path and this is a pretty cool rod of iron. And the other people who are falling off don't seem to be doing so well. So let's kind of keep on doing this thing together. And, and that's kind of the, the imagery I see here because when I've taken the time recently in my life, because I'm such a novice at this, I've recognized that in my life, I value questions almost as much, if not more so than I value answers, definitive answers anyway, right? And I've come to be able to sit with these questions that bring as much joy. And and in that process, it's it's this concept of coming to the Lord with these ideas and, and asking the Lord, like, okay, what about this idea is right and good? And, and what part of them am I still missing? And letting the Lord kind of work and, and mold and shape that idea. And there's sometimes I ask questions that are like, that are like the equivalent of asking God if he can create a rock big enough that he can't lift, right? <laughs> these are just, these are questions that I know aren't even reaching the ceiling, let alone, let alone the sky. And then there comes times where, man, I, I do, I, I, I can feel these questions forming. And then I ask a question, I get down in, in prayer and in a meditative state and, and I ask these questions and I feel like they go all the way right, right to the feet of the Lord. And it's that time I feel like the spirit's next to me and the spirit's like, man, that was a great question. And I'm like, I know. I was, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it was all this excitement. And I know it's a good question because a lot of the times it comes from a place that like, I know how I typically think. I know my thought process pretty, pretty okay. And it comes from a place that's deeper than that. It's, it's the most interesting experience. And the question itself seems to almost come with its own answer or solution. But when I, I ponder over it or I'm meditating on it, what I've noticed in my life, I've missed out on the opportunities the most is just like you said, a lot of the times when we're praying, we just get right up off our feet and like, that's it. And you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, yeah, we did our duty and we're off. And you know, maybe God will direct me down the road. And what I've noticed is that I would pray and one of my favorite things to pray about recently is, Lord, what lack I yet? And then to sit with that and just in the stillness and the silence and just let that just overtake me. And for me, I've borrowed some of the Thomas Keating approach or the Richard Rohr approach. And, and I'm content not to necessarily ask a question, but put myself in a state of mind where I know I can be with God and then let him do his work on me. And so I might take that, that famous scripture and just say, be still and know that I am and just sit with that. Oh. That's a prayer of contemplation that is so powerful 
that uh, allows me to get into a state where I know I'm drawing nearer to God. Yeah, I love that. I love that too. I mean, in those moments when you're able to sit with that, something comes. And what I've noticed is a lot of the times when answers do come, because it's not all about questions, answers do come. My typical approach has been, okay, boom, I, I step up, I jump up. And I start formulating some kind of grandiose plan about how I'm going to fix this. And then nothing really comes to fruition or I get so tunnel visioned in with what I'm doing and so focus driven that I lose sight of the the spirit and of that moment with the divine that I had. And so now I take the time whenever I'm conscious of it, that when those answers come or when that prompting comes or when those answers or, or the questions manifest. I just sit with it and experience that as a moment in itself. And that has been far more powerful for me in my life in allowing the spirit of that moment to percolate and to exist for the rest of my day. Because a lot of the times I was noticing I was having these prayers and these moments where I would pray or I'd meditate or I'd take a moment of silence. And then the moment was over and boom, I'm back to my hectic life. And it's like I lose all of that. But by sitting with that moment with God in the answer, in the question, that seemed to have this longer lasting effect that has actually gone into deeper parts of my life than before. You know, you and I have somewhat similar uh, paths that led us together. And, you know, one of them is that we, we took kind of a rationalist approach almost to religion in that we would incorporate these these natural law theories and economics became a part of our religion and, and all this that we we met and we we started our relationship in this think tank uh, this you know policy economic think tank called Libertas yeah and that was a great so, that was a great opportunity yeah and, and you know people might under might uh, realize who that is connected with you know Connor Boyack and and he started that think tank a, a number of years ago. That was the 10 or so years ago, whenever we met. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was director over free enterprise or something like that. Uh, and then you were a director over individual liberty, I think. And there uh -huh. was a couple other guys involved. And all of it to me was a very rationalist approach. It was like, okay, we're going to make sense of this world and we're going to make this this sense that we've made out of it our religion. It's it's big part of our religion, Right. And the more you read stuff from, you know, like an Ezra Taft Benson or an H. Verlin Anderson or those kind of very liberty-focused authority figures within the church, historically, you start – that's what pushes you down that path. You're like, yes, 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 this is this is right. I've got to keep on pushing for liberty and freedom. And one of the things I've come to realize, and I think that you as well, is – the further down that path you go, the more you realize you just don't need the circumstances um, politically, economically, socially, whatever, to be perfect in order to uh, find communion with Christ. You can find it in any circumstance. And if there's anything that you can learn historically from the early Christian martyrs under very oppressive uh, political regimes is that you can still have peace you can still live your faith. In fact, you have opportunities that are far beyond um, in terms of living your faith. Those who would uh, – when, when you're living in an oppressive regime versus living in something that's very accommodating. Yeah. When, uh, when we first started off, I had just gotten out of BYU. I was, 
I went into BYU with this head that I was going to be involved in politics for the rest of my life because it fascinated me. And it made sense. It was rational. You can make sense of the whole system and the structure. And I ended up from political science, and then I went into like international relations, and then I went into economics. <laughs> I think I switched majors like five times. Bless my wife's heart. And I finally ended up in philosophy. And I started to realize that the thing that really drives me, and I know this is not the same for everybody, but... I like to know the why of things. And I noticed that political science is the what and the how, but philosophy was the why. And so I studied four years of political philosophy at BYU and I studied the greatest minds and it was a wonderful experience. But, it, and I've told the story before, but it was my last semester at BYU when I was graduating at the end of studying the greatest minds of political thought and being introduced to those when I read Neil A. Maxwell's book called The Enoch Letters. And it's a really short book. You could read it on a Sunday afternoon. And, it, and it's just, it's so easily accessible. And I started to read it and recognized, though, that Elder Maxwell had been a political scientist. He had been in the political world before. And that was, his, that was one of his earliest professions. And in the book, it started to identify all of the political philosophies that I had been studying. And I don't know if I would have recognized it had I not been studying philosophy for four years, but since I had, I started to notice the little nuances that he was pulling out and he was identifying all of the major political theories and economic theories and subtly making the point that they are all insufficient to our divine human end of building Zion and to our potential of creating that kind of society. And that was when everything changed for me, when all of the rationalism, because I, 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 I especially love to study the early American political thought, early American political philosophy, the European Enlightenment. You know, I, I loved John Locke. He was, he was my boy. And, yeah. and so I, I read all of that that I could and, and all the free market economics books and, and Mises and Rothbard and everybody. Yep. So in getting into that, it all made sense. But once I started to realize that the world is based on so, uh, the world is based on a certain set of ideas and assumptions and axioms, and God's kingdom is based on a different set of criteria and assumptions and axioms, and they're not the same thing. Yeah, didn't you feel like Christ was always trying to flip things on his on its head, right? Yeah, like he would say, "You have heard it said, but I say." Or the world puts it this way, and I put it this way, you know. And, and, and so he's always trying to flip any of the uh, social structures that we've convinced ourselves lead us to Zion that are the preconditions of Zion. So he's trying to flip those on their head and say, that ain't it. That's not it. That's right. And, and Elder Maxwell had made a point where he says, don't expect to follow the world's solutions to fixing the world's problems to yield very good results. It's just not the way it works, right? It's like when it's like when uh, Hugh Nibley got up in front of the student body and he said, "Here we are, dressed in the robes of the <laughs> false priesthood." Right? Right. I don't know if he was doing some kind of graduation speech to the the law school or you know the business school. I can't remember exactly. Some some listener will know, but in any case, the point he's making is that you know we're entering into an order. That is not the Christian order. It's it's an order that is has been thrust upon us by society, and uh, I'm not going to make uh, a pronouncement about whether it's good or evil. It just is. It's what it is. It's it's society's 
he called it the counterfeit. And and that's what it kind of feels like is that you know there there's a there's a different way of doing things. And we talked a little bit earlier about rationalism. Well, there's the other flip side of that coin is the mysticism. It's mystical, right? We don't have to know all the answers. In fact, it's more about the questions. And and rather than try to pin down all the things we think we need to know in order to get somewhere, we need to just maybe take that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and set that aside in in favor of the tree of life and just live a life where it's okay that contradictions exist. I mean, there there were contradictions in the Garden of Eden. Here here's Here's one commandment, do this, and then also do this other commandment or don't do this other commandment, right? Like an inherent contradiction right off the bat. And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? And uh, the fall, and maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in terms of future fodder for other uh, podcast episodes. But it just seems to me that it's it's very interesting that you go from a terrestrial state where there is not knowledge of good and evil that has been partaken of at least. And by partaking it, you fall to a lower kingdom. But in order to get back, you've got to get back to a point where you're okay with contradictions again. Not everything is going to be so black and white, with me or against me, right or wrong. There's going to be contradiction. And and living with that and just being in that state of mind might be the secret to returning, at least to that next kingdom, right? I mean, this is all speculation. And again, I'm a novice, but I'm just – it makes sense to me that it's – and the Buddhist tradition has gone miles with this, way further than we have. There's a couple Christian mystics that have touched on this. You know, Meister Eckhart is one of them, that contradictions uh, are not only reality, but they're part of the master plan. They are what they are. Being with those contradictions is a big part of figuring things out. I love that you brought up the plan of salvation. And I don't know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I love it. Let's go with it. Because with that plan of salvation narrative, I love the fact that when before they eat the fruit, they're in a state of innocence. They're in a state of unity, that they have a singular purpose. The world and the earth gives forth of its abundance. And it's it's unity. It's just a singularity of thought. And when the fruit is introduced, all of a sudden now we have opposites. Now we have good and evil. It's the, it's the fruit of a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So all of a sudden you enter a space of unity and of, and of oneness and wholeness. And now you are now entering into a dualistic world where you know things, but not because of what it is, but because of its comparative value between good and evil. Right. And it's, it's into that. You things in relation to their opposite. Right. Good and evil, virtue and vice, health and sickness, rather than knowing things as an experience in the present moment. Exactly. Exactly. So we enter into this. And so this is where Father Lehi is in the Book of Mormon when it talks about having to have opposition in all things. In this celestial world, that's where we're born into. That's by nature of the fall. We know the hot by the cold. We know we know the light by the dark. We know everything good by the evil. It, everything has its opposite. And the whole concept, though, is can we return to a place of unity where reality then is circumscribed into one whole and when we just partake of what is? And I love the imagery that that process is coming back to the tree of life. And when we partake of the fruit of the tree of life, it's the love of God. But there is something that stands there in our way between us in our dualistic way of seeing things by its opposites to us to just experiencing the unity of the love of God. And that's cherubim and a flaming sword. 
And symbolically throughout the scriptures, a sword is always something that divides asunder. It's always something that mm-hmm. cleaves. It's always something that separates. And the fire there is also symbolic. It always is of a purging. It's something that sanctifies, that purges, that lets the, you know, the, the dross fall out for in, during the smelting process. And so not only does the angel divide asunder anything that approaches the tree, but it also purifies it. It seems it's, there's a cutting away of the natural man. There's a cutting away of all of the things in this life that are not a part of reality, but only our perceptions of reality. So that as we become closer to the tree, we are all emptied from the natural man and from that dualistic mindset and having to see things in opposition to all things to where we can literally just come back into the contemplative unity of God to simply exist in a framework where we experience the love of God. Well, and and embedded in the very title of the tree of life is a timeless idea about context and what context does to us when we when we focus on the past and the things we can't change about the past or we focus on the future and the things we don't have control of because we were not in control as much as we like to believe we are we're not in control and the tree of life highlights that hey there's only one way to actually live life and that's in the present moment and so when you start you take that flaming sword and you and you divide right you cut things down the middle and you say well this is light and this is dark and you know it's light because it's the opposite of dark and you experience dark in the past and so you you know you have that context for something to compare it to you have a comparison right but when you're living in a moment you're just experiencing things in that moment and yeah you're building a a store of experience within your mind that can help you to discern, and that's all good. But in terms of existing in that higher level of existence, a Zion-type existence, which is terrestrial, doctrinally speaking, you have to return to the unity. You have to return to the present moment. You have to strip away the context of past and the possibilities or worries of the future and just live in the moment, experience things as they happen, and just accept them as they are. If I were to have heard this conversation five years ago, even in my <laughs> own life, I, 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 I would have been like, what are these guys talking about? This is, this is just bizarre stuff. And it's really taken a lot of effort to really push into the pushing the parameters of what I thought I knew before. And as I said, that's why I'm such a novice at this. And, and I hope this ends up making sense to a lot of people because when you, when you are still starting your journey on something, there's a lot of discovery and a lot of questions, a lot of open-ended questions that you're, you're exploring as you're doing this. And part of that, I, I read a book not too long ago. It was, it's called Cross Vision by, by an evangelical minister. His name is Gregory Boyd. And what he does is he's going through and he's talking about how to make sense of Old Testament violence with a New Testament Sermon on the Mount type God. And he introduces this idea that has completely revolutionized my scripture reading, has completely revolutionized the way that I approach scripture and and I see scripture and I see God's hand in, in everything. And he introduces this idea called cruciform hermeneutics. But what that means is a lot of the times, and I noticed in and of myself, that I read the scriptures as a basic way of how to disqualify certain difficult aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas you're not alone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I was. I'm in good company with everybody. I think. Right? Yeah, I think. That's I think most people do it. One approaches it. They're like, oh, we we can't really, you know, love our neighbor and turn the other cheek and and give him our coat and cloak and walk, you know, walk Twain when we're asked to walk one mile. We can't really do that stuff. So here's why: look in the Old Testament, you know, or look in you know, Revelations or something, right? Right. Exactly. And so reading this book and a host of others, it wasn't just this book, but it was a library of others about the subject. My scripture study now, my moments of reflection are now where I use the atonement of Christ and the doctrine of the Sermon on the Mount, as in Matthew and also the Sermon at the Temple in the Book of Mormon. And then I use that as the the catalyst or the, the lens I use that as the layer by which then I go back and I use that to interpret the rest of scripture. Mm-hmm. And man, that has revolutionized everything. Well, and, and just to point out, there's there's the Sermon in the Mount is in the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament as well. And who was it that spoke about it? It wasn't the kings. It wasn't the military leaders. It was the Isaiahs. You know, they're the ones that are. And when when Joseph Smith and, and when in the Book of Mormon were were always admonished to you know, study the words of Isaiah, greater the words of Isaiah. Well, for an Old Testament text like the Book of Mormon largely is, who else are you going to point to that has the Sermon on the Mount than Isaiah? I mean, it's in 55, it's in 58, it's in 61, it's in 63. It's throughout Isaiah. You'll find elements of the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to speak to us. And and the, the hallmark of a prophet is a, a truth teller. It's someone who speaks forth. And uh, what they're speaking is rarely adopted. Uh, if it is, they have a <clears throat> they have an era of of peace and harmony and, and Zion type uh, existence, but it's rare. And that's almost the hallmark of a prophet in any age is that they they tell unpopular truths. Especially Isaiah, man, Isaiah, he is he's been known in a lot of circles as the nonviolent prophet because he, man, he really really doubles down on that on that messianic message when Christ came and they were expecting that that military leader who was going to overthrow Rome and was going to establish Jewish nationalism again and really solidify God's people and when the true messiah came man he was nothing like what they were expecting right mm-hmm. and but he was everything that Isaiah said he would be and man what a what a powerful message the sermon on the mount produces for those of us we call ourselves Christians. It's it, it has become such an integral part of my own discipleship. And I often wonder, how did I not see this before? Because I've, I've read the Book of Mormon. I was raised on the Book of Mormon. I was taught to read from the Book of Mormon when I was a child. And the apex of the Book of Mormon's message is Christ, Christ appearing to the Nephites. And what does Christ tell the Nephites the very first thing when he comes? What's the very first part of the the sermon that he gives them is there at the temple and it's the sermon on the Mount all over again. So if I'm finding it in the new Testament and if he's giving the exact same message in the book of Mormon and the book of Mormon is that important message of scripture for us, this, there's gotta be something important about having it in both places. And I've missed that message most of my life. Well, and I think it's almost forgivable, honestly, because if you look at the volume of writing dedicated to uh, chronicling the history of wars and contention between peoples, 
it's easy to misinterpret that as prescriptive versus descriptive. And I know that you and Ben talked about this in your uh, Come Follow Me podcast as well. And, but it's important to highlight here um, because it's it's a big part of reading uh, a cruciform hermeneutic interpretation of scripture when you're reading the Old Testament or the Book of Mormon is to look at it through the lens of Christ and what he's trying to teach people. And then all of a sudden, the example that is described of some war between this clan and that clan seen through the eyes of Christ is instead of a, hey, you should do this, it's a, hey, this is a warning. This is what not to do. And I'm describing it here so that you can understand that the outcome that's associated with this uh, contention is not what I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. And, but we're missing that just on sheer volume, right? We get overwhelmed by the volume of scripture that's dedicated to contention, and we and we think that's how we have to live. Yeah, I love that distinction between the proscriptive and the descriptive. That just because it appears in scripture, we often look at that as our proscriptive rule book of ethical values, that that's the way we're supposed to act, as opposed to this is the way that these particular people were trying to figure something out and maybe they were succeeding and maybe they weren't, but I'm succeeding and maybe I'm not. And if I write my own narrative, it's going to be a hodgepodge. It's going to be a mess. I, I already look back on journals that are, you know, are things that I've written in my own life and it's already a mess where I can see my spirituality and the arcs and the dips and the turns and the times when I'm doing really well and I'm not doing really well. And I know that, but if I were to ever just hand that over to future generations and I didn't put those caveats in there about this is what I was going through, it would, it would be indiscernible. I would look like a crazy person sometimes. And so I think with scriptures, we miss that proscriptive and descriptive distinction a lot. And I think that's going to be a really neat thing for us to to pull out there because, because in a sense, we can only really do that, I think, in a correct way if we're using the Sermon on the Mount and the Atonement as the objective reference point in gauging how that's supposed to work. And if, if we take and rank order... I know that that's a little formalistic for my liking as well, but if we rank order the most important messages of all scripture, you're going to put the words of Christ right at the top. I sure hope so. And then from there, you might work down, right? But just by doing that simple act by itself, putting Christ at the top, then there's no more excuse to say, well, yeah, but there was this one time when Elisha sicked the two she-bears on 42 youths and killed them all. So what does Christ <laughs> have to say about that? Put, put Christ at the top and let him tell you exactly what he has to say about that. And it's quite obvious. And so you that you then can contrast and say, well, one of one of these is doing it right and one of it is not. You know, and it's a very easy decision at that point. But we we're always trying to justify a way the Sermon on the Mount. We're, try, we're trying to explain it away by the by the existence and example of lower beings, if I, if I can be so bold, right? <laughs> yeah, I like the way you put that. It is, it, it is hard. We do justify it away because it, it requires a complete shift in everything that we are. And when I look at the way society is going today, and I see that nothing society has produced and nothing society has created 
is really aiming at fixing the problems that it caused, there has to be something different than just reinventing the wheel. There has to be something different than just keep on doing the same thing we've been doing over and over again. And when I look at the Sermon on the Mount and I see how Christ is distinguishing the kingdom of heaven and his order from the narratives that civilization is built upon, man, that's really good stuff. That's just really good stuff. And, and the more we're able to see that juxtaposition and to see that, the more we're able to really envelop ourselves and trust in that, that message that Jesus Christ has to offer. So I think people listening are like, what are these guys talking about? They're just rambling on so many different subjects. But I guess what we're trying to do here, from my perspective at least, is to introduce the kinds of topics we're going to be diving into in further episodes, in subsequent episodes. And and how we're going to go about that is from a very – I don't, I don't want to say naive, but and I don't want to call myself humble, but we're we're coming into this thing to be taught. Um, I'm here to learn. Shiloh's here to learn. And I think that through enough discussion and bouncing things off each other and off listeners, and we welcome feedback, please, any feedback at all, we're open and we'll incorporate into our following episodes. So that, that's really important is to hear back from, from anyone listening. But how we're going to go about this is from a standpoint of humility. We're just trying to understand things and grow and be present with God in whatever and, and whatever methods we can use to do that. There's an openness that we both have in wanting to do that uh, and a hunger to continue to discover truth and build upon the things that we've already been taught within our own faith tradition. I'm excited for the opportunity. We've got so much material that we can dive into and we're gonna we're gonna get laser focused in each episode, but I think this has been a good overview of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's really hard to be able to create a, a single narrative about what this is going to be. And I like that we have touched on a lot of different subjects that are under the envelope of this peace studies movement and, and something that we would like to create a discussion about. As I've noticed, there just isn't a discussion about any of this really going on. And it really seems like this is a really good time to start this kind of discussion. Well, let's talk about the timing of that, right? You and I are on the front end of learning and growing a couple years in, you know, but there's so much material, so much to learn. We're diving in and, and absorbing as much as we can, but what a unique opportunity and what, uh, what an opportunity has been presented to us at this moment in time, going through the turmoil of a worldwide panic not to speak one way or the other about, you know, the merits of that, but basically just to say the timing of it couldn't be better. Our prophet, uh, President Nelson, at this time is telling us over the last year, I want you to become more independent in your study and in your practice and in your discipleship. I want you to minister and serve those upon prompting, not upon assignment. And I want you to do it from the standpoint of the spirit. And let the spirit lead you. I mean, I, when you take all of these factors and you add them up and then the fact that we've been in home church now for a couple months and learning how to be self-directed in our discipleship, rely upon uh, a network of people that we choose. It's not geographic. And so we're trying to do something just a little different in bringing together sort of a, 
a haphazard congregation, if you will, around the idea of peace and contemplation. And we're really excited because I think that people are uh, hungering and thirsting for this type of information wherein they can really augment and improve upon what they already know to be true. And we hope that's what we accomplish. We're here to build faith, not tear it down. There are approaches to that that we think are unique, novel approaches. But that will be our goal the whole way is to uh, increase your faith in Jesus Christ. I love the video from President Nelson when he's on a plane and the engine goes out and he thinks he's heading down to a sudden death. And he notices that there's another passenger who is obviously very distraught and, and is crying loudly. And, and he's, and he says that he fully will believe that that was the end. That was where he was going to, that's where he was going to meet his maker. And the peace that came to him in that moment, that whatever happened, happened and that he knew what was, what was there waiting for him. And I even read a, saw another video of him when he was there with his wife. This can have been more than a month or two ago where he said, you know, whether I'm on this side of the veil or I'm on the other side of the veil, he goes, it doesn't matter. I'm just excited for, you know, to keep on working and doing what I'm doing. And his wife kind of nudged him and he says, well, we care. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he's like, well, yeah, I, I get that. I get that. And so that's the kind of peace I strive for. So when we talk about this Latter-day Peace Studies, we're, this isn't about just going out and creating world peace, because as you and I have been involved in politics, and that's where the political discussion came in, we've noticed that there really is no solution in the political world. We can try to work out and hammer out a few details there, and there are a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good things there. But ultimately speaking, we're not going to find peace in the world. That's not the peace that Christ came with. He offered us a peace that's not of the world. And it is a type of peace that, if experienced, will revolutionize the world. Well, and we don't have to earn it. He says straight up, peace I leave you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. You know, the kind of peace we try to achieve through our own efforts is is in the political realm. It's in the it's in the social engineering realm. It's you know that that sort of thing. That's not that's not the peace of Jesus Christ. That that sort of peace that He's highlighting is already here. It's it's with us right now. The kingdom of God is among us, and His peace is among us. And so for us, it's a matter of just absorbing it, to experience it, to let it be part of our lives, because we crowd things out all the time. We live in 90% of our lives, we live in past and, and future. And there's so little time spent enjoying the peace of the now. I, I just finished, a, I'd call it a book, but it was really a lecture that was put in the form of an audio book by Eckhart Tolle, Tolle a German, I guess you could call him theologian, philosopher, whatever. And it, it's called Living a Life of Inner Peace. And, and the whole, you know, the whole sermon, the whole five hour, whatever it was, sermon, spoken to a crowd was about trying to get people to strip away their obsession with the past and the future and enjoy the peace of the now. There's other faith traditions that are way ahead of us on this, and we can learn so much from them. And I'm, I'm excited just to discuss those and learn from others that are experiencing that. But for now, I think it's enough to just say it's there. It's, it's for the taking. We can have it right now. You've talked a lot about the now 
what I love is Christ is telling us the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ comes along. He's like, listen, take no thought for your life, what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to clothe your body. There's more to life than that. He's like, you know, think about the, think about the birds. Think about all the fowls of the air. They're not sowing. They're not, you know, they're not going out. They're not reaping. They're not gathering. They're not storing food away. He says, but our heavenly father takes care of them. And if our heavenly father takes care of them, how much more can he take care of us? And now this isn't, this isn't a call for us all to quit our jobs and to stop thinking about our futures and and whatever we're doing. But this is a call that we start to live mentally and spiritually more present in our daily lives. And by doing that, we, we lose incredible amounts of anxiety, anxiety, stress, panic. A lot of that fades away because things outside of our control, things outside of our world that we can't fix and that we have no power of that we, and then we feel a sense of powerlessness about most of us. We don't have a say in how that's going to function and how, and how to control those things. For, for, for my efforts, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change the whole pandemic situation. What I can do though, is I can bring peace to my own life. I can bring peace to my family's life and I can touch those who are within my, my circle of influence as it were. Well, here's the $64,000 question, Shiloh. You've been, you've been on this path now for a little bit. What are the fruits? You know, it's absolutely amazing because while I noticed it, just like President Nelson, that's why I brought it up. As there is so much panic and fear around me, I, I might get the I might get the flu. I might get it bad. I you know whatever the potential is of me losing my life. That's that is a real possibility, as a real probability that I might have to deal with that at one point. I haven't had it yet. Hopefully, I, I never will. Hopefully, my family never will. And I pray for those who are affected by it. But in this particular place, place in my life, I am at a complete peace. I have no fear and I have no worry or concern about it. And that has largely come because of work that I do in prayer and in meditative moments because it sent, it just has this weird, I, I call it weird. It's glorious. This, this presence that comes that settles and rests and takes away the fear and the panic of the world. I've never been an anxious person, never been plagued with you know, those kind of, I guess, psychological demons or whatever. I, I know how prevalent it is, though, because it's all over my family. We have all kinds of addictions. We have all kinds of things that beset my family um, in mental health, uh, mental health wise. And so I, I, I sympathize or excuse me, I empathize with those that experience that. I, I really, it's hard for me to sympathize because I don't experience it. However, like anybody, I do experience stress and I have occasional anxiety and I have moments where I'm up and down. So I, I, I know what it feels like to some extent, not the, uh, you know, kind of the critical or uh, more marked experience of those who, you know, really struggle with this. Nevertheless, for me, what I've noticed is those things, even the small amounts of stress, anxiety, depression, up, down, whatever, even the small amounts of that, they're just largely gone. I have had zero, zero anxiety about COVID-19 or any other circumstance that might be surrounding that lately. 
zero. You know, people ask me how I'm doing. Never better. Never better in my life. I'm so, if you, to borrow a Buddhist term, I'm so Zen about things. It's I'm fine. And it's because I know that this is a tangential experience right here. It, it's temporary, right? The, the long view of things is that he's always with us, whether in our down moments, our up moments, whatever. He's, he's right there. And so we can experience that even in the worst of circumstances. If there's a lesson that comes out of reading about the early Christian martyrs, it's that we can, we can have peace and comfort. And we, we've talked about this Maximilian, St. Maximilian. You posted a couple days about his story. And for those listening, please go read the story of St. Maximilian, early Christian martyr, uh, conscripted to serve in the Roman army like all young men were. And which is still the case in many countries, including ours, by the way, conscripted to serve in in the military against his will, because that's not something Christians did in the early church at all. And he flatly refused, knowing full well what the consequence was. So the Roman soldier that was trying to force this upon him to have him take the signet and wear it and become a soldier, his name was Dion, and he flat out told Dion to his face, I'm not going to do it. I'm a Christian. I won't serve. And you know, that's not to cast aspersions on other people. I'm not, I'm not in the business of tearing down you know, the military or whatever. That, that's, I'm not going there. I'm only pointing out the, the simple reality that the early Christian martyrs, uh, early Christians, generally speaking, did not and would not serve in a military capacity. So Maximilian, with perfect peace, and a clear conscience goes to his death that very moment, beheaded in front of his father and family. And not only he, on his, at the very end, expressing a full peace with where he was in his life, having his life cut short at a very young age, but his father as well, thanking God that he was able to witness his son expressing his discipleship in such a powerful way and then going to his maker where he would rather be. I mean, I don't want to go any sooner than I need to. I want to be with my family. I think that, you know, I want to be here. Nevertheless, if it happens, it happens. I, I'm perfectly at peace. And that's that's the difference for me of of this practice that I've entered into in the last couple of years has just been an overwhelming peace. So for our next episode, one of the things that I want, we're going to talk about is how the Sermon on the Mount has changed our lives and get into some details. Also, how the Beatitudes helps become a process that we can follow in learning how to empty ourselves of our fear in building for ourselves a more peaceful life. The Beatitudes have been something that I have ignored and I've, I've misunderstood my entire adult life until recently. And so it's something that is just born a lot of fruit in my life and quick. It's been fast. I, there's fewer things that I've been more surprised about is how fast the fruits of the spirit grow when it's good fruit. And so the Beatitudes for me have been incredibly powerful. And so I hope they're as powerful for everyone listening so that when we talk about that, it starts to give a framework to what Riley and I have been talking about in how this peace has started to form in our lives because once that peace starts to form, part of the Beatitudes is that when you hunger and thirst, you're going to be filled. And I've often wondered, how do I, well, how do I even start to hunger and thirst? And 
well, those answers get, those questions have, well, at least preliminary answers. And so it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a, a great, a great discussion next time. Well, Shiloh, it's been great uh, conversing with you, and I'm so glad you invited me to do this. I'm excited for the prospects going forward. And we invite all listeners to please give us any feedback, positive or negative, ideas, topics that you'd like us to discuss. If you want us to reach out or you have contacts with a guest who you think would be good for our show, let us know. We're open to suggestions, and we're excited to interact with you as well. Absolutely. Well, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Riley Risto. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.